Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and we are continuing our making available the webinar that we did early in 2018 to everybody. And in this episode, we are going to feature David Gornoski talking about politically correct mythology and how the gospel is the solution to this, <laughs> this pernicious way of viewing the world. So David Garnoski is an expert in mimetic theory. He is a radio host at a radio station in Florida where he lives. And he is like one of the best people to understand what mimetic theory is and how mimetic theory can help libertarians understand the world around us. So I hope you enjoy listening to David Garnoski talk about mimetic theory and the gospel. David Garnoski. He's an entrepreneur, a speaker, and a writer, and he's the founder of A Neighbor's Choice, which seeks to introduce Jesus's culture of nonviolence to both Christians and the broader public. Uh, you can find it at aneighborschoice.com. It's also the name of his weekly radio show on state violence and alternative solutions to it. So our webinar tonight is Politically Correct Mythology Versus the Gospel. This is a very Gornoski-esque title. I am excited to have David lead us in a deeper dive into this topic of how the gospel defeats the PC mythology. I'm glad to be with everyone here. And if again, if you're not familiar with mimetic theory, please let me know in the comments here, and I'll be sure to you know just have an understanding of people's background uh, in the field of study that I'm drawing from, and that's namely anthropology uh, in a philosophical anthropology uh, with Rene Girard as a major um, founder of the st of the mimetic theory being a source of inspiration for what I'm uh, drawing from today. You know, if the topic of this lecture is political correctness mythology versus the gospel. And in order to illustrate my point, I want to give uh, a snapshot from a friend of mine named Luke Scarmazzo, and he's a Facebook friend of mine, and he posted this yesterday at 5.20 p.m. The great American author Ernest Hemingway once observed that there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at the typewriter and bleed. Here I bleed, although I understand that my life and all its struggles have purpose. That doesn't mean every day is easy. I wake up every morning with a 22-year sentence to serve in this hell on earth, a place where death and life mean little, where dreams are nightmares and nightmares are reality, surrounded by gray concrete blocks mortared in misery and despair. It is what makes this place exist. The rusty knife is twisted anew each time I see a front page story covering the rapid growth of the marijuana industry, an industry I helped to found. Unfairness, frustration, and anger are just some of the feelings that surface. This year, my dear friend, my brother Ricardo, who co-founded CHC with me, will spend his second holiday season at home with his family. He was rightfully freed from his 20-year prison sentence, yet I still bear our cross. I'm isolated from the world, divorced from liberty. I ask myself, why am I still in prison? How am I in a maximum security penitentiary for a nonviolent marijuana offense? But no one answers. I miss many things in life. The softness of feminine laughter the sweet fragrance of spring, sitting with family around a log fire during a winter night. I long to hug my daughter, to talk to her, to hold her hand through the hardships of growing up. 
I miss these things dearly. Some days, to be honest, many days, I want to shout at the injustice, scream at the unfairness, clutch the inequality and shake it even, but I don't. I take all that pain and suffering, all of that desire and anger, and turn it into strength, the fuel I need to overcome even the highest mountain, the inspiration to never give up. Neil Simon once said, if you can go through life without experiencing pain, you probably haven't been born yet. This reminds us that pain is a necessary part of life. It's as much a part of joy as the smile on my face. So that's from my friend, Luke Scarmazzo. Now, Luke is in prison right now. And so we just heard what I would say is an example of what I call gospel technology or the voice of the victim. We have someone who is in modern-day slavery conditions. He's enslaved. Cage. He's in a human cage with violent people. He's numbered among the transgressors. And he is speaking out because he has access to some semblance of technology, it appears. And he's able to make his voice cry out. And he wants others to share that voice because he feels he has uh, received injustice. This is similar to what we see in the Psalms over and over again, where King David cries out uh, for rage and injustice against the people around him plotting to destroy him and keep him in bondage, keep him in darkness, profane him and rob him of joy. This is what Luke is dealing with right now while we will go to our beds with nice uh, Egyptian cotton, some of us who are capitalists, and we will sleep soundly, most of us, and wake up. And we'll be able to have the freedom to get into a car. And if we have a little bit of money, we can turn that car on and drive practically anywhere we'd want. And if we have a little extra money, we can get on a plane ticket and we can fly anywhere we want in the world. This man can't because he was involved in the marijuana business. Meanwhile, we just found out that one of those uh, marijuana fund, capital funds or something, just hit a billion dollar in valuation, I think, on the stock market. So that just gives you an example of the, the, of the kind of uh, banality of this whole system that we're in, the whole banality of evil and how, um, apath- how almost uh, absurd it is and meaningless Uh, the whole system that we live in, it it really is. And so today I want to try to give you some meaning as to why it's meaningless and the way it feels. And so mimetic theory, just to define it briefly, was a theory that encapsulated um, all of the social sciences into one broad stroke theory, which unified all of human uh, social investigation into a kind of a comprehensive guiding theory similar to how the theory of evolution was used as a unifying theory for biology, this theory has a a tremendous uh, unifying ability for the different psychology, literature, theology, philosophy, sociology, and anthropology. And Gerard passed away in 2015. He was a professor at Stanford University. Um, And his theory um, today, there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of depth to it, and I don't want to bore everyone. I want to get really get really to the point of my lecture. Oftentimes, I find whenever I do a lecture on mimetic theory, I spend so much time trying to give people a full scope, but then I get lost in the weeds. Trying, so there's so much beauty and so much richness in the theory, uh, has so much import. I can get lost in the weeds weeds sometimes uh, in terms of trying to. Uh, you know, it's like a kid in a candy store. There's so much juice and candy I want to give to everybody um, from this theory. But in this category, I want to talk about the scapegoat mechanism. Uh, Gerard believed that human societies create order and meaning. Uh, in fact, language, society itself, culture, traditions, dance, art, and religion all come from this need to channel bad energy and bad blood and negative vibes onto a common enemy in which 
someone who is the ultimate insider and the ultimate outsider, someone who uh, kind of has uh, a foot in both the kind of outer world of the culture and also a foot on the inner world of the culture, kind of a paradoxical balance. This could be uh, someone who's a king, someone who is a uh, peasant, someone who is a, a hunchback, someone who is uh, the prom queen, who is uh, hated by many and, and coveted for her social status and beauty. Anything that kind of stands out in a sea of sameness is a target for what Gerard calls the scapegoat mechanism. And that's an unconscious mechanism that human beings stumbled onto almost by accident in history as a means of staving off out-of-control violence. If we look at the animal kingdom, we'll notice that animals have a kind of circuit breaker for their conflict not getting out of hand. And that's the dominance and submission mechanism. So when you watch wolves, wolves, when the beta male uh, submits to the alpha male, he renders his neck available for the alpha male to strike. And the alpha male typically won't do it once that gesture has been done. Uh, there's a sense in which animals are not looking primarily to kill in the middle of their rivalry over territory or mates, but rather to do whatever is necessary. And killing or revenge is not even really a thing in the animal kingdom primarily, uh, although there is some debate in the chimpanzee world. Um, uh, those guys can go apes at times. But there is a kind of uh, tendency in the animal kingdom to have a circuit breaker for violence. However, with human beings, we are master imitators. We catch ideas and passions. We catch heartbeats racing in conflict. Uh, we catch adrenaline rush, anger, and accusation and suspicion. We, we ping pong that off of each other very quickly, very virally very mimetically. That's what that word is coming from, imitation. But it's deeper than just imitating monkey see, monkey do. It's about imitating desires themselves or intentions or perceived motivations uh, that we see around us. And so because we have that unique aspect to our species, that will drive us into out-of-control vendettas. And those things will be easily turned into um, basically annihilation if there's not a way to channel those aggressions. Once you get started in a feedback loop of violence, it becomes very difficult to turn that feedback loop off. It spirals into a tornado frenzy of hell on earth, what Hobbes called all against all. Uh, this is a sense of undifferentiation wherein the boundaries of order and the boundaries of sense of self. I am me, you are you, you have that space and you have your food, your family, so forth. I have mine, we're good. That is lost when you have rivalry in a human society. And if there's not a way to channel that violence into a safe valve in which it won't spread like a wildfire and catch everybody in the middle of it, then human beings, if they're imitating each other, okay, you get locked in like little magnets. You ever watch ducks in a lake and they kind of, when they do the little rituals, whether it's date, uh, mating or, or, uh, or conflict, they kind of look like little magnets. They'll just spiral around orbiting each other and moving their legs almost in perfect unison. Well, that's what human beings do. That's how they escalate rivalries from petty little things into killings. And then those killings, you know, you kill my brother, I kill your family. Then you kill my village, I kill your nation. I die in the process of killing your nation, and your nation for the next 10,000 years is trying to get vendettas against my people. Have you heard of that in history? I think we have. That's not happening in the SEAL community, folks. Those 10,000-year feuds are not happening in the SEAL community, and they're not happening in the Penguin community, nor are they happening in any of the other communities that we are aware of at this point. We're not sure about octopus, the octopi. They may be doing stuff. I heard they were aliens the other day. Someone said uh, there's some evidence. I don't probably very circumspect. But anyways, so there had to be a way for human beings to mimetically 
channel their imitations of each other in a way that wouldn't cause everybody to go to hell and die and extinct, right? And that's why we have found the evidences that we have found evidence in archaeology that the communities that do not practice ritual sacrifice in the ancient world ceased to exist. They were expunged. They went out of business. So they didn't, if you didn't stumble onto the scapegoat mechanism and find a way to keep it practice in a way that uh, would maintain cohesion and unity within a community, then those groups often cease to exist. So it doesn't mean that that's the only means by which a community could maintain its order, but it seems to be the the the, the standard mode of operation that we see all over the world. Uh, we see the a common practice, whether you're in China, whether you're in ancient uh, uh, Samaria, if you're in Babylon, if you're in the Persians, if you're in ancient Greeks, if you're in the ancient Germans, you're seeing evidence of ritual human sacrifice as a practice that it binds people together. That word religion, it means from the Latin to bind people together. And so when you think of the word religion in this context, think of that as a function, not as a set of metaphysical beliefs. Metaphysical beliefs are almost a window trapping, window dressing to kind of make sense of the original binding agent that is religion, which is a, a sense of ecstatic oneness. Write that down, ecstatic oneness, also known as catharsis, that you feel when you participate in a communal expunging of a person everyone truly believes is guilty and deserving of punishment in order to stave off a crisis. And that expunging, that, that unity is so ecstatic. It is a thrilling feeling that is so amazing in being able to resolve bad blood and hatred and suspicion and aggression and uh, hormones of rage and all those things that ancient humans felt as if the person who had caused the scapegoat, uh, the scapegoat catharsis, the, the scapegoat, we thought he was a demon at first, thought he was a trickster, a troll, you know, probably wears one of those red hats online, you know, some of those little villainous trolls that are destroying the sacred order of the way things are supposed to be. Uh, that troll, after it's lynched or eaten in the earliest times, cannibalism was the earliest stage of this, there is an overwhelming sense that perhaps this person wasn't just a troll but could have been a god because he brought us together. In his death, we are saved. In his death, we are bound together in his body. And in some sense, he is resurrected as the, as the guiding spirit, the guiding ancestor that unites our village or our tribe. And so he is resurrected in us being united as one body. That's what that word remember can help you understand. We are, when it says, when G, well, I'm not going to get into that yet, but the idea of remembering history, we're remembering a body back together. When we come together to remember who we are as a people, that word originally comes from this sense of remembering a body which was torn apart for the unity of the people. And does this sound bizarre to you? Maybe you have seen the William Wallace movie about Brave, you know, Braveheart. Well, you know, William Wallace, his, you know, he was a scapegoat for the, uh, in some sense, you know, he was a scapegoat for the uh, uh, people of England at his time. And uh, they, what did they do? They chopped up his head, his arms and his legs. They put his head on one part of the north part of the city. They put his legs on the other part, put his feet on the other part. So his whole body was a kind of surrounding effect for the oneness the sacred unity of the people of England. So, oh, wow, that sounds bizarre. Well, why were we doing that? <laughs> well, I've just given you an insight into that. And, you know, by the way, all of this can be understood through the lens of the gospel. And so I want you to understand that the reason why, here it is, 2018, and we have a situation where the whole nation is tearing itself apart because of this accusations uh, made by 
this Dr. Ford against Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court nominee. And I want you to understand where we have come from and why this is such an interesting, almost apologetic for the revelatory power of, of what Jesus did in history. Because in 18 AD, when Jesus would be a young man, you know, at his time, if a young lady or say a middle-aged lady like Dr. Ford came to the Romans and said, when I was a teenager, uh, the high judge of the court or the high Senate leader or whatever, he uh, uh, sexually uh, tried to touch me. And I think he should be, you know, sexually assaulted or whatever. And I think he should be uh, barred from the court. Okay. What would happen to that person? 18 AD. Okay. We've had, We've had um, a lot of time for mythology to, to try to change our moral values or whatever, give us good moral principles. We've had Hammurabi Code. We had uh, all these different influences all around the world stage. And here we are in the Middle East, in Rome, the greatest empire at that time the world had ever known. Um, what would have happened? Okay, They would have laughed her off. They would have stoned her, killed her, lynched her, raped her laughed at her and unfortunately, or, you know, imprisoned her, did, did, did terrible things. So if you were a woman in that time, the, you probably would not have much of a standing at all. You'd be uh, dismissed forthrightly because you were inheriting the fruits of thousands of years of scapegoat violence being the underpinning of the logic of pagan cultures, that you're receiving the, the continual afterglow effect of. So if you are a woman and you have no power and you're accusing someone who has the highest power politically, you're done. You're over. It's not even a chance. And so uh, today, in 2018, 2,000 years since Jesus of Nazareth came to the earth, uh, we have a situation in which a woman makes an accusation against the Supreme Court potential guy highest place of justice, you know, kind of a, a, in some sense, one of the most powerful places in America's government, which is the biggest empire in the world. So perhaps the biggest judge spot in the earth that we know of. And this woman uh, can accuse this person and receive a sacredness, a sacredness towards her accusation that none dare suspect if you are to be considered in good, polite society. Of course, the scapegoat class, the working class, they spread memes saying that she's very suspect, but that's okay because those are the Walmart stoppers, according to the media, and those are the slave class. We just kick them down because they can't, they're just animals. We're going to try to weed them out from society. So they're, they're kind of, they're hated and they're villainized, and they, but that's why they're allowed to to say suspicion about this woman's testimony. But her case, her, her testimony is treated with sacred aura, okay? Although she's levying an accusation against the highest judge on this planet in the solar system, what's happening? Well, Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The first in Jesus's time would have been the high judge of the land of the Roman Empire. And the last would be a woman making an accusation or a misfit or any type of, you know, target for violence that had much, that had, didn't have much recourse and standing in the hierarchy. So the last would be uh, that woman making that accusation. Well, did he, did, is what he said happening in history? Okay. Is what Jesus said happening in history? Yes. Okay. My big point to you is we are going to become the first and the last, and the, la the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We're going to become that the easy way or the hard way. We're going to, re we're going to repent of our violence and our sacrificial scapegoating rituals that Jesus came to expose, as he alludes to the things hidden since the foundation of the world. And as he alludes to the idea of, uh, you know, Satan being a liar and a murderer from the beginning. The lie is the false accusation that this scapegoat is the cause of all of our problems. 
and is deserving of death in order to atone for the people's bad blood. And the lie is that God demands the innocent blood of scapegoats in order to love us. The murder is the scapegoat lynching or cannibalism or expelling from the community. And so when Jesus says that Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning and that he's come to reveal things hidden since the foundation of the world tied to that riddle, and he also says, go and learn what it means God desires mercy, not sacrifice, then we have a clue that Jesus's inauguration of his upending of the powers is right around on time. It's happening. 2,000 years later is a pretty short window to have as much progress as we've had. And now it's not a, a total upward arc, of course, right? It's it's I, I make the, the trajectory of history look something like this, okay? In the ancient world, history was like a circle, okay? It's like a cycle. And it's just like the patterns of nature, fall, and you have winter, spring, summer, all those, right? Those patterns of life and death, and that pattern of, of birth, calamity, you know, famine, starvation, and sacrifice, which was often made in the darkest winter, you know, the darkest day of winter, winter solstice or what have you, to kind of, uh, you know, bring life to a barren, dark world. Uh, it brings forth spring, which is the new birth of new new culture, new rememoration, new remembrance of what it means to be bound together through the shed blood of someone. Um, so, so the ancient world was a circle, and that's why the ancient world was locked into a, a drama of tragedy, okay? And tragedy is at the heart of mythology, the idea of the hero falling and the hero being the one that has to, the fallen hero that must... Uh, be uh, he he goes too high, which means he's probably a target for sacrifice because he's too he, people envy him too much or her, and so they sacrifice him and that shed blood unites us back together and we do the cycle over and over again. That is a circular pattern of history in which the best was really the golden age behind us, and we can only hope to kind of remember the good old days through uh, ritual and tradition. Uh, through the shed blood of of, of uh, a target who is who is deserving of sacrifice, um, with Jesus, okay, and you see this with the woman with with the story of the water into wine, okay, when he makes the water taste as wine, uh, that's a, that's a declaration that the Gospels want you to understand. That's a declaration of war against the um, cyclical. Uh, tragedy-based structure of history that the world up until that point had only known, which is that the best wine is brought out at the end. When everybody thinks the show's over, in the ancient world, you brought out your poor $4 wine at the bottom of the shelf at Walmart as your final wine when everybody's walking around. They've had full mouths full of fish and uh, matzo balls. They're, they're just loaded and they're just staggering around or whatever, and that's when you bring out the $4 wine at Walmart because they won't know the difference. And with Jesus, he brings out the best wine, you know, the best wine, the, the best is yet to come. You ain't seen nothing yet is what Jesus is saying, and it's a declaration of war against that view of history which had been locked in the eternal recurrence, Nietzsche calls it, the eternal recurrence of the sacrifice of the noble death. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com slash abortion. So what happens is, ever since Jesus coming into history, now we have a trajectory arc, a linear view of history that progress, the idea of the word progressive, comes from a Christian worldview, a Christian historical trajectory, that history is moving towards a direction in time, and that we, as his body, participate in co-creating that new reality. 
Okay, that progress. That is inaugurated with Jesus' mission, and we are participating in it. That is a comedy, because if you ever watch a comedy, the best is at the end, okay? There's conflict, there's rivalry, it's based on envy, there's problems that have to be resolved, but at the end, it ends with a marriage usually. And that's how the Bible, by the way, ends with a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb, being the culmination of, 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 of history, the cosmic order. So the Bible ends in a comedic fashion uh, where the best is at the end rather than the best being in the rearview mirror. And so that trajectory, that linear progression is in conflict with the circular trajectory of conflict, resolution, uh, sacrifice, repeat, wash, you know, just try to maintain some moral standards to keep something kind of together. And it's okay to use uh, might makes right and, and, you know, use coercion and violence to, to get things done. That circular pattern is in conflict with the linear pattern that Jesus has inaugurated. And so what it looks like history is something like this. It goes up and then there's a spiral down. And so you may be in this spiral right now where it's going to feel like it's all going to hell basically for the next whatever hundred years. There's no, I'm not, there's not like a precise numbered time on all these cycles, but in the general sense, you might be on a low period of history where it just looks like it's all hell, all right? And that's usually an apocalyptic awakening to that culture's uh, reckoning with its own scapegoats in history, wherever the gospels infect a culture. And then it comes back with rebirth as they as they struggle through with new nonviolent creative solutions that replace the original use of violence and sacrifice. And so you go up and that progress technology grows with the the abandonment of brutal means of dealing with people and barbaric means of dealing with with uh, tensions in a community. And so that pattern creates like a curly Q effect where you're always going up in the grand scheme of things but there's still cycles and patterns and it's all, it's not an inevitable thing. It's always up to the human choice of whether we're going to be the body of Christ and self-sacrifice rather than sacrifice our neighbor to achieve things of beauty, goodness, and truth. So now I've set the stage. That was just the introduction. Now we're going to get to the lecture. So, um, so the, so the topic is basically, Politically correct mythology. What is mythology? Okay, mythology, I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Mythology is a cover-up for murder, okay? Now, I know Jordan Peterson. He's a good person. I just saw him a few weeks ago, but it's not all about the archetypes. Those are important. That's an important layer, but it's like missing the forest for the trees. If we get so excited about the archetypes, which have some moral truths and some, because God made the world, there is divine you know, traces of the divine in those archetypes and myth. But we can't be too stuck on that and not and, and miss the forest for the trees. And the forest is a forest of ritually sacrificed human victims through history. That's what mythology is. So when you, just briefly. When it says things like Marduk passed by a god, and that god hit uh, Marduk on the head, and then out of that popped out uh, the little turtles, and those turtles coughed on each other, and that made uh, humans, right? That's a cover-up for ritual sacrifice, okay? There's no turtles at the bottom of that myth. Those are, those are, are slow uh, distillations of symbols representing an original crisis of undifferentiation of scarce resources or whatever triggered a, a state of chaos of all against all mimetic violence, which is an apocalyptic moment, which is resolved through the uh, selection, accusation, and expulsion of a scapegoat, which in the expulsion unites the people so nicely that over time they remember that victim as a kind of God as an ancestor spirit uh, who has a kind of ambivalence. He can be good or bad. So that's why uh, mythology, the gods' bio, if you read the bios for a lot of the gods, like in the Greek gods, right? Their early years are mischievous. You know, it's like the wonder years, right? You ever seen that show? They had a lot of mischievous. They were playing games. They were getting into taboos. 
They were getting into incest. They were getting into patricide. They were getting into uh, orgies. They were raping. Uh, they were raping. Uh, you know, humans on Earth, even though they're you know. So there's all these these weird like you know mating with animals. That's where we get you know half goat, half human, half bull, half human, half horse, half human. All these are taboo signposts that some victim was accused of a taboo breakage. And then uh, it gets told through oral tradition over and over again. And that remembering begins to really create a really strong narrative that carefully projects the violence of the community into the sky as the gods, that the gods demand sacrifice, when in fact, the gods are themselves just victims that have been deified because of their unifying effect for law and order and peace in society. That's why when you go to the mountain where Zeus was originally said to have been born, they just found archaeological evidence of a teenage boy ritually sacrificed at the top of the mountain. So there's your grandeur of Zeus, a shivering teenage boy murdered in a lightning storm in the dark, bound at the top of the mountain with no one to listen to his cries. If they heard his cries, they would not care because they could not see culturally the lens necessary to hear the voice of the victim. And so because we have 2,000 years of Christian infection into our culture in the West, that's why we're always haunted by victims. That's why we're always worried about what we did to the ancestors, I mean, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to indigenous tribes that have come before us in our communities that we took over uh, as settlers or lands, you know, that we expropriated unfairly or, chicken, you know, gave diseases to tribes, cut their hands off when they didn't convert to the Catholic Church or whatever. We are really obsessed with self-flagellating ourselves, particularly our ancestors, and anybody who likes our ancestors, they're very taboo in the West. And that's said whether you're in Western Europe or America, um, there's an obsession with uh, uh, self-flagellation as a means of showing your social status and your social currency and your coolness, and for lack of a better term, uh, in Western civilization. And that's because uh, the gospel works as a kind of yeast in a loaf that slowly infects and undermines the power structures that Satan had built with sacrifice. Uh, Satan convinced the world that his way was the best way of the world. That's why, by the way, if you go to the mountain where Jesus is, tradition says in Jerusalem, Jesus was tempted on the mountain. Uh, if you go to that mountain, I was there in, in Jerusalem, in Israel recently. It's actually overlooking the city of Jericho. And if you look at the city of Jericho, I, I went to the city of Jericho. The tallest point in that city uh, was a, a tower where they did ritual human sacrifice and animal sacrifice. Um, and so when, and you know, the word Jericho means moon city. It's founded on the ritual sacrifice to the moon god. They also have good bananas there. They're tasty Uh if you go to the uh, city center in Jericho with this ritual sacrificial temple at its core, that's, the, that's the, the center, the heart of the whole polis, the whole logic of the city. You would hear children screaming and crying and murder as they're sacrificed because that's the way the world knew how to do things. That's how you were solved. That's how you please the gods when the gods, if you tear that veil, is just a petty crowd of people who know not what they do. So when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, the mountain he's at would overlook Jericho, and he would see when, G when Satan says, you can have the kingdoms of the world if you just worship me, let's not trivialize that and just think he's just saying, I just want you to admit that I'm really cool, look at me. No. What he's trying to say is, look at the kingdoms. If you worship me, that word worship is, is uh, going to indicate to us, imitate. If you imitate me, you will have the kingdoms of the world. Meaning, what do you see, Jesus? What he would see would be Jericho in his direct line of sight in the temptation wilderness. And he would see the ritual sacrificial temple 
that made the lights keep kept the lights on, so to speak. It was the price to pay for a civilized order. And so Satan is the accuser. That's what the word Satan means. He's accusing Jesus. He's saying, please, just imitate me, and you'll have the kingdoms of the world. What he's saying is, you need to keep the game going, brother, because if you reveal what's really going on, you won't have the kingdoms, and you could really go down as a hero, as a king, just like all the kings I own. They all do ritual sacrifice. They go to war when it's expedient. They tax when it's expedient. They expropriate. They steal, loot, and kill for their cronies. You can play the game too, and you're really good, so you'll be the best at it, and you'll have all the kingdoms uh, following you, like Alexander the Great or something, you know, basically is the idea. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it, right? And of course, Satan, because Jesus refuses to sacrifice another, Satan conspires with the leaders of the, of the crowds in Israel and Rome and so forth to ritually sacrifice Jesus in vengeance for refusing to submit to the order that had founded things since the foundation of the world. And, of course, that backfired because when the Gospels tell the story of Jesus, they tell it in a way which unveils the sausage inside mythology and sacrifice. So if you have a sausage, so think of it this way. If you have every city, every nation, every tribe and empire in history is a sausage factory of sacrifice, but nobody knows what's inside the sausage. They just eat it, and they're just like, yum, this is great. This is why we have order. I love it. I go to these ritual sacrifices, and then eventually it's animal sacrifice, but there's still violence. There's still war. There's still war. There's still you know lynchings or mob justice, so that's all uh, manifestations of that original founding murder that is at the heart of all these uh, satanically gripped ancient communities. So all these communities are locked in this sausage factory of sacrifice. And what Jesus does by having the Gospels record the honest account of what happened with his persecution, it is an unveiling of what's inside the sausage. And let me tell you, once you know what's inside the sausage, folks, you don't want to eat that sausage anymore. And that's why in 2018, we are continually haunted in the cultures which have had the gospel infect us the most, and with literacy and being able to read the text and be influenced in our art and our architecture and our music and our narratives and our role models and our movie plots and subtext, all haunted by the gospel narrative. That's why we're so obsessed with victims. That's why we're so guilt-ridden. That's why you have young people shouting, shame, 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 shame. It's not just from Game of Thrones, folks, okay? That's a catchy way to get people started. But trust me, there has to be some latent soil of guilt there to make that such an effective appeal for so many of people in, the, in our youth and, uh, who, who, who have a desire to change the world for progress. Oh, that's a Christian idea. To progress history in a way that protects victims. So they scream shame, 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 because they feel the haunting of the sausage. They know what's in it. They feel it. They have an instinctual feeling, oh my goodness, this this society is starting to, you know, they don't know how to put their words to it. So they want to cast all the blame on their rivals, whether it's Republicans or Democrats or white males and, you know, minorities and immigrants and all that stuff. That's just what I call scapegoat hot potato. It's like guilt. You get a bottle of, get a big old hot potato of guilt on you and it just burns the ever loving. And so you want to throw that hot potato onto somebody else so that guilt gets put on their back so they deal with it. But the the cats out of the bag, the sacrificial cats out of the bag, uh, yes, they were using cat in the sausage, it turned out. No, but, but really, but see, so I want you to see this. So in the Gospels, you have this, this unveiling of the sausage of sacrifice because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have an eyewitness report of the wrongful persecution of Jesus at the hands of envious, uh, uh, fearful um, political leaders who themselves are at the whim and at the power. At the end of the day, 
They're under the domain of the mob, of the people, of the crowd. That's ultimately what rules the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. And so in the Gospels, you have almost a satire on sacrificial mythology and a satire on the logic of scapegoating rituals, unveiled for the first time in history. So now, instead of it being, uh, if you went to the Aztecs, they'd say, the gods demand this child to be sacrificed. They'd pull him up. They goes up to the Holy of Holies at the top of the pyramid structure, lay him down, cut his heart out with their hand, rip it out, offer it to the sun, God, and that would somehow appease the God, which in reality was creating a cathartic effect for the mob. They felt, they projected that feeling as if the God was blessing them, and they correlated it flimsily onto rains coming during famines, so forth and so on. And bada bing, bada boom, the sacrifice, the sausage is made, ritual cannibalism, blah, 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 was in some of the uh, other tribes. Same thing, same deal. But with Jesus, now we see the mechanism. We see the, the, the parts, the material, the innards of the whole game. Now we see, oh, uh, we see Caiaphas saying transparently what it is. He says, don't you see, it is better that one man die uh, than that the whole nation perish. So what does that mean? He's telling you the whole story. It even says that he did not say this of his own, but he's prophesied under the Spirit, meaning it's winking to the audience. It's like a meta statement. It's saying, look, this is the heart of, of what is at stake here with the gospel war, with the gospel conflict of, of heaven and earth, uh, the domain of evil, the domain of Satan versus the domain of, of, of the things of God. Uh, and that's why Jesus says, "Go, oh, Israel, if you'd only known the ways of peace, right? He didn't say if you'd only known the ways of voting, the moral majority or some, you know, superficial thing that we get hung up on or known the ways of the proper theology. He says, no, if you had only known the ways of peace, right, that's your climactic tell. Well, what is the way of peace? The way of peace is to mimetically not transfer uh, violence back onto your uh, persecutor or and also not to scapegoat people. It's the same thing. You don't retaliate with violence. You don't retaliate with the way of Satan, which is that violence is sacred. That is being a challenge by Jesus every step of the way. That's why when Jesus is riding into the don on the donkey, when they're praising him, um, uh, there's a, so much rich material there. But that statement where it says uh, the the leaders say, "Tell your people to be quiet," and he says, uh, "I tell you, if they were if they are silent." Then the stone, he says, when they are silent, the stones will cry out. Now, people usually think of that as like, like a zippity doodah, where all the flowers are singing, and that's what Jesus is saying. Like, I can make a rock talk, like in a, in a fantasy novel. That's that you're missing everything if you see it that way. What he's talking about is he's actually quoting Habakkuk chapter two. And if you go to Habakkuk chapter two, you'll see that that's where the prophet is condemning the people of Jerusalem, and it says, woe to you who found your city on bloodshed, and uh, the stones cry out with the blood of the victims, basically. Uh, and so that's referring to the idea that um, a ritual sacrifice was at the very heart of even the foundations of the cities. They would take a cornerstone ritual, lay it on a live victim, and they did that for building a village or a bridge in China or Jericho, they did it. It was a, a common thing that they did everywhere uh, you went. And so Jesus is calling that out. He's saying, when this crowd, which is cheering for my name now, next week or whatever, when, they, when, they are, when they're silent, when they stab me in the back, the stones will cry out, meaning the hidden victims of your system and the world systems, their voices will be heard through the, the stones that hide them currently from people's eyes. That's precisely what's happening. The victims of all the world, wherever the gospel goes, communities are haunted by victims. And so political correct mythology is ultimately about concealing the voice of victims in a way that seems like it's giving a voice to the victims. So it keeps personhood in the stones. You can't see personhood for what it really is. 
you're hiding the personhood of each individual person and saying, no, you're, you're now in a new hierarchy based on how many victim intersectionality points you get. And so there's a, a new ziggurat of sacrifice. And at the top are the people who have the most checkpoint checklists, uh, you know, scrap checked for, you know, disabled or a woman or a minority or a minority religion or poor, all those things, whatever they are, you, you know, uh, socialist, whatever those little things that make you fashionably a victim, class, you're now belonging to a collective group that has privilege to speak and to be heard in a way that removes uh, innocent until proven guilty, uh, the respect for individual sovereignty, the right not to have violence be done to you for a nonviolent uh, problem or disagreement. All those things are thrown out the window because the more we are wrestling with awakening slowly, it takes generation after generation to slowly grip, okay, what does that mean that God desires mercy, not sacrifice? What does that mean? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. It's, un, it's an unconscious subversive experience that's taking place, and we manifest it through the way we make our stories and write our movies and so forth. And as that continually you know, pricks our conscience— um, we try to do something with that guilt, that hot potato guilt. And so we don't want to actually do the real simple thing that Jesus tells us to do, which is to repent, change your mind completely, and desire mercy, not sacrifice. So that means you wouldn't have the system we have today where people are voting for uh, FDA to use sacrificial violence to stop alternative medicine, always in the name of victims. Notice that. Everything done now that's sacrificial violence is always done in the name of victims. Well, it's failing to unite us. And so politically correct mythology is breaking apart right before our eyes. It's failing to keep us united. And the populist alternative, the mere double of that politically correct hegemony that rules our culture, that populist mere double that Trump and those guys represent, is trying to hold on to an older religion of nationalism, which is kind of taboo and passe. But because it's passe, it has its own scapegoat currency. It's like, well, it's an underdog now. And because we're gospel-haunted people, it has its own uh, social currency as an underdog movement because it's so villainized in the mainstream dominant media narrative. So the more they dump on Trump and villainize him, the more they dump on Kavanaugh and villainize him, it enables them to have more social currency and power. Nevertheless, my bet on who's the more totalitarian, powerful entity in terms of a legion of, of a crowd ideology, I would put my bet on the left and their political correctness because it more it more insidiously imitates the aesthetic of the gospel in the sense that it's it's crying very strongly for injustices at least it sounds like it and so in they they know how to master art and storytelling in a way that gives a voice to scapegoats makes people think about you know wrestling with you know oppressing people who are unfortunate and so forth and so they give a voice to the victim more accurately oftentimes than those on the right. And so they tend to run and control the, the power mechanisms of storytelling, which is ultimately what drives meaning in everything. Uh, law, justice, all that stuff, politics and economics is downstream from storytelling. And the left has been able to monopolize that for so long because they more effectively as a crowd group phenomenon imitate the aesthetic of the gospel. So the gospel technology is, as, as, the way you imitate the gospel is that you literally use your voice, whether it's a Facebook or Twitter or a blog, or, a, or you film someone being arrested unfairly or, or violently for, or, or whatever, peacefully for an unjust law. Can you film that on camera with your smartphone? That's a piece of gospel technology. If you do a podcast, if you do a radio show, if you do a movie, a documentary, whatever it is, go use media and use your voice. Do public speaking. Use your media, your life as a medium for the voice of the victim. And as you do that, you're going to imitate what the gospel writers do, which is you're going to give an honest account of the wrongful persecution of an innocent man 
or woman, just as Jesus was, wrongfully persecuted by ultimately a crowd. Because right now, most voters believe that they're not responsible for the violence that politicians or police or military people do on behalf of people who receive violence unjustly. They always think, oh, that's those guys. That's the way for them to scapegoat politicians and police or soldiers for the system producing vulgarity whenever it flares up in their face. Uh, so what we have to do is point the spotlight onto the crowd, just like the gospel shows that it's the crowd ultimately that governs um, Pontius Pilate and uh, uh, the Jewish leader Caiaphas, um, that that's what they're afraid of. Um, and they want to stave off that chaos. Um, and, and we have to, so we have to show that all these unjust laws like these unjust wars, the unjust drug war, the unjust, unjust economic laws and regulations, all of those are fueled ultimately by voters who consent through apathy or active participation or going along on a jury and saying guilty or whatever, not showing any concern for saving that son of God or daughter of God from the living hell that the, that the prison system is. Um, that is what the gospel technology is. It's giving, it's, it's using your life as self-sacrificial living stones in the temple of God or living members of the body of Christ to unveil the rotten body of the state. Not just the state as an entity outside of us, but the state as a state of mind that ultimately has our culture still somewhat wrapped up in its clutches. And, and this is something that's so important, folks. This is the most important part of the message, is that it doesn't matter whether we, uh, you know, want to get, like, what I want to say is the gospel is effectively destroying the logic of original sacrificial structures. That's why the flag doesn't bind us together anymore. That's why the, the, the Pledge of Allegiance doesn't bind us together. It's causing, it's causing outrage. That's why the Senate doesn't even get along anymore. They used to be little buddies. At least they played one you know, in, their, in their characters. Now they're screaming at each other. We're coming apart at the seams. The, the logic of violence and wars don't unite us anymore. That's why we were for killing Saddam Hussein, and we quickly turned against it. That's why we can't get enough public attention to kill uh, Assad. Uh, we have to use children, you know, you know, show vo videos of children dying. Again, that's fraudulent use of, that's, a, you know, kind of like political correct mythology there where you use, oh, look at these children being gassed. Therefore, let's go murder Syrians, right? Let's go do regime change and kill Assad. So it's like the, the, the state knows how to expropriate, you know, gospel technology in a fraudulent way, and they manifest it as politically correct mythology. And so as they do that, it has a way of obfuscating the vulgarity and the evil of participating either actively or complacently uh, in the perpetuation of, of the status quo, which is evil. Ultimately, it's absolutely evil, and everyone should do whatever they can to not participate in and actively give their station in life to voices. So like last week, as it, or this weekend, I was at uh, Students for Liberty and I let someone who was a non, who's in prison for a nonviolent marijuana charge, I had him call into my speech and I put him on the speakerphone to let him tell his story, right? And you can do that. Every one of us can do that, okay? Because they had 100 people in that, in that room well, you have a thousand or people or whatever is on your Facebook, let them, every one of them know, or whatever you use, email list, whatever, the voices of victims. And now you're imitating the gospel technology as Jesus would have us to do. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. 
The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.